some of the best policymakers and regulators that I've encountered have engineering and STEM backgrounds. I'll just say that. So coming at the policy and regulatory world with a solid understanding of engineering and, and STEM is a great benefit to the policy and regulatory world. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the It's Material World podcast. I'm Puneet and David is here with me. So David, I know we had Super Bowl weekend just pass us. How did your weekend go? How did you think the game went? Oh, it was very exciting. One of our teammates is a big Eagles fan, so he was very, very sad. <laughs> Sorry, Kyle. <laughs> Sorry, Kyle. But no, I thought it was a really good game, and my favorite team, the Falcons, was out maybe even months ago. So at this point, I didn't really care. Yeah. Um, so so no, I, I really enjoyed it. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I'm a Steelers fan, so we were you know, heartbrokenly eliminated right right at the end of the end of the season. But we didn't really have a chance, anyways. This kind of showed. Chiefs and the Eagles were at another level, and there's a, there's a long ways to go for for us Steelers <laughs> and Falcons fans. <laughs> but some longer than others. Yeah. <laughs> some some longer than others. Yeah. But but it was a great game. It was a great game. I, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, looking forward to next year. But taking it back to the material science world, we brought on Max Luke today to talk about um, superconducting transmission lines. And in particular, uh, Veers, the company he works with, V equals IR, their role in the transmission line space in, in terms of creating liquid nitrogen cooling systems. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of a background, um, but I wanted to see if you had any tidbits or favorite parts of the episode that our listeners should look forward to. Yeah, I know that I'm very invested in energy storage. And so to electrify or make a green like electric grid, it will take a combination of different technologies. So I thought it was very interesting to hear about how we could also take a look at the solution. So for example, for um, like, I don't know, solar energy, you would have to usually have like battery packs that would hold it on site, but that requires a lot of cost and a lot of maintenance for each individual site. And so now with this new technology, uh, you can transport over long distances with very little to no loss. And so that really opens up for electric green electricity to be even more readily available and lower the cost. And so I thought it was just very interesting how it's not going to replace energy storage, but augmenting the technology to be the most efficient is the best result. And so I thought it was very interesting to hear about how other fields in the area are working to basically improve themselves. Yeah, for sure. And it was crazy kind of just to hear the the numbers when we asked for it, you know, 5x, 10x compared to the legacy transmission lines. But I thought an interesting perspective that he provided was he is the director of policy and regulatory affairs at Veer. So he has a science-based background in biology, but then he also then earned his master's in technology and policy from MIT. And so I thought it was interesting just because we've seen in several previous episodes, you know, there's the materials related challenges, right? But then there's infrastructure challenges that especially startups need to overcome. And a lot of that requires interacting with policymakers and being able to work with them to kind of drive innovation forward and really kind of pitch your company and why it's beneficial for them to work with you and establish, you know, legislature with regarding your company and your industry. So that is something that I would recommend kind of looking out for is just hearing more about his background, seeing if that resonates with you. He has certain skill sets that 
enable him to be, you know, a great director from, from this perspective. So yeah. Anything else that our listeners should keep an eye out for? No, I think that he gives a good insight into what it kind of takes to change such an old and like institutionalized network. And so he gives outlook on what are the next steps and how like we could slowly integrate new technologies that require these new material innovations that have been around for a few years, but are now finally seeing the first commercial use. So I thought that was very interesting as well. Absolutely. So before we get into the episode, we would just love for you guys to leave a rating and a review on our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Um, and then also subscribe to us for future episodes. We release episodes every single Monday, Material Monday. So um, yeah, we've been going strong and we hope you stick along alongside us. Hello, everyone. For today's episode, we're thrilled to welcome Max Luke, Director of Policy and Regulatory Affairs at Veer, a company focused on developing superconducting transmission power lines. After earning his bachelor's in both biology and economics from McGill University, Max earned his master's in technology and policy from MIT, specializing in the economics and regulations of the electric industry. Max has held several roles in which he has led advocacy for new clean energy policies from governments and regulatory bodies. Specifically, Max's expertise is in advocacy for innovative technologies in the electric power and energy industry. Great to have you on the podcast, Max. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited about this. And so let's get into what Veer is all about. So I believe the overarching goal is to modernize the United States power lines by developing superconducting, super efficient transmission power lines. Can you briefly describe how Veer's technology is different than you know, what we have currently, like from the traditional transmission lines perspective? Study after study uh, sort of demonstrate that we need a great deal more electric transmission capacity, uh, not just in the United States, but also globally to achieve greenhouse gas emission reduction and energy access objectives around the world. One of the big hurdles associated with transmission development is finding the land associated uh, to build that new transmission line. So I'm, I'm going to use the shorthand siting and permitting for that process by which you find that land and to build a new transmission line. So the, the real innovation with Veer is that we can deliver five to 10 times the amount of power of a, uh, relative to a conventional transmission line at a given voltage level. And therefore, we can use a pre-existing, a pre-permitted or a pre-sited piece of land to squeeze you know, five to 10 times the amount of power through that corridor and therefore avoid the need or significantly reduce the need for the those siting and permitting related uh, challenges. You told us kind of before the podcast started what VEER actually stood for. And so I was just wondering, you know, V equals IR, right? How does that law kind of come into play? And plus the materials perspective, because it's a material science podcast, how does all of that factor into kind of developing these more efficient, you know, superconducting power lines? Right. So the yes, the company we're called Veer, V-E-I-R, and V equals IR is Ohm's law. And this is the relationship between voltage, current, and resistance. So Veer, what Veer is doing with uh, superconducting lines is that our lines have negligible resistive losses. So this is a big deal. This is in contrast to conventional copper and aluminum-based transmission lines. As you squeeze more voltage through those lines, the resistive losses associated with the, the flow 
through those lines increases. And it, it doesn't just increase linearly, it increases the square function. And so uh, we use a, a class of materials called superconducting materials, which have been around since actually the 1980s. And more recent, and, and in recent years, the material scientists have developed a class of superconductors called high temperature superconductors, which are uh, sort of the best in class. The reason they're, they're called high temperature superconductors is because you don't need to cool them down as much as previous generations of superconductors. So in order for a superconductor to be a superconductor, you have to get it down to below a certain critical temperature. So this latest class of superconductors, high temperature superconductors, you only have to get it down to 79 or so Kelvin. So this is very, still very, very cold, right? <laughs> However, it's warmer than the previous generation of superconductors where you had to get them down to in the tens Kelvin range. And the only way you can get to sort of 10 Kelvin is by using, for, for example, liquid helium. With this new class of relatively high temperature superconductors, you can now use liquid nitrogen, which has a boiling point of around 79 Kelvin. And the reason that's such a breakthrough is because nitrogen is extremely plentiful. 78% of our atmosphere is composed of nitrogen. Nitrogen is produced en masse in several industries, including the food processing industries, the medical science sciences industries, the uh, oil and gas industries. So there's already a robust supply chain for the production and shipment and transportation of liquid nitrogen. So we're going to be piggybacking on that existing supply chain to cool our lines. I guess we'll get more into it, but I guess, could you briefly describe how you're able to disperse liquid nitrogen throughout your lines over like long periods of distance? Or how does that process work? Absolutely. I, sh I should have mentioned previously, our innovation is not in the materials itself. So we're taking these high temperature superconductors, which have existed for a while now. We're taking those. There's a, a growing supply chain associated with the production of those. Our innovation is really on the cooling system. And this relates to your question, David, because previous iterations of superconducting transmission lines, they use really complex and expensive cooling systems. Um, so they use essentially large mechanical cooling systems in a closed loop of liquid nitrogen to flow cooled liquid nitrogen through the system. And this really hinders the ability for those earlier generations to travel long distances because you need basically house-sized refrigerators every few kilometers along the length of the line. And if you know anything about the electric utility industry, that poses a significant reliability challenge that is uh, frankly unacceptable to the industry. So our innovation is on the cooling system. We greatly simplify the cooling system, which enables us to go long distance, much longer distances than the previous generations of superconducting transmission lines. So what we do is we inject liquid nitrogen at a certain point along the length of the line. The liquid nitrogen flows along the length of the line and it heats up incrementally along the length of the line, maybe going from 79 Kelvin up to 81 Kelvin sort of thing. Once it hits sort of that higher temperature, it passes through a relatively small heat exchange unit and some liquid nitrogen is evaporated into the atmosphere. That process, that phase change from liquid nitrogen in the line to gaseous nitrogen in the atmosphere is, a, is an endothermic process that recools the liquid nitrogen that's flowing along the length of the line. And so the liquid nitrogen is back down at 79 Kelvin or where it needs to be. And then it flows for another kilometer or so until it needs to go through that process again. 
this, uh, which we call an evaporative cooling technique, is our innovation, and it's much simpler than the previous iterations. And it allows us to go very long distances before you have to top up the line with additional liquid nitrogen. So probably about 100 kilometers or so between uh, those topping up of liquid nitrogen. And it, moreover, we use a lot less liquid nitrogen than previous generations of superconducting transmission lines. And therefore, for the first time, we can take the lines overhead. So previous versions have all been underground or sitting on the ground because they're so heavy, because they use a lot of liquid nitrogen. We're not constrained by that anymore because of our innovation in the cooling system. So we can now go overhead as well as long distance. What advantages does it provide to have like overhead transmission lines versus underground or on the ground? The benefits are mostly economic. So if you look at the transmission market globally, the vast majority of transmission today is overhead. The main reason for that, well, there are a few reasons, but the main reason is that it's much more expensive to build transmission underground. So it's you can think about why. You, basically, you have to dig up a trench and put a line in. And that trenching process, depending on the substrate and what surfaces you're digging into, can just be very, very expensive. Undergrounding can also be much more disruptive to the communities in which you're building the line. So for those reasons, a good rule of thumb is that an underground line is going to cost you 4x the, as much as a, an overhead line. So going to your liquid nitrogen evaporative solution, is this a passive system or does this require power itself? Yes, we designed it from the get-go to be a passive system. So there are no electronics in those heat exchange units that I referred to. There's a float valve and a heat exchange coil, totally passive system that we anticipate will have a, a shelf life of 20 to 40 years without having to even think about it. And in fact, we know we need it to be that reliable over that amount of time because that's what the industry requires. Many transmission lines today have been in service for 50 years, 60 years or more. So these are long-lived assets and we know we need to meet that standard. And so we explicitly designed it so that this is an entirely passive system with no with no electronics and, and relatively few moving parts. Well, that's very interesting. And I think we're going to dive more into the effect of that. But first, if we take a step back, it seems like in your role, you interface between veer and legislators. What does your job actually look like? Uh, do you appear in front of Congress, have one-on-one -on -one senators, or what exactly does the interface with governmental bodies look like? There's a great deal of activity, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, and particularly in the United States, with respect to transmission. So in, in November of 2021, President Biden signed into legislation the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, also known as the IIJA. And so that put into statute a good deal of funding for transmission infrastructure. And then um, shortly thereafter, in 2022, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. And there too, there was some funding for transmission-related activities. So, and then in the backdrop of all of that, there's there have been study up analytical study after analytical study that have come out saying we need at least two times the amount of transmission capacity, you know, relative to the existing transmission capacity we have today in order to achieve these net zero emissions targets. So all that to say is that there's a there's a great deal activity in, in the policy sphere and the public sphere now around transmission. So my part of my job, what that entails is, yes, it's liaising with legislators, both at the at the federal level, but also at the state levels to um, sort of educate them on Veer's technology, to explain what we're doing, 
and to explain that and to reemphasize the need for additional transmission capacity in this country if we're to achieve greenhouse gas emissions uh, reductions targets. So what does that like liaison entail? Like, what is your goal with reaching out to them? What can they provide to you? You know, like I know what value you're providing. How can they be of use to you and the industry as, as a whole? I'll give you one example. So the industry is very familiar with equating more voltage with more power. You often see the phrase high voltage transmission lines as a stand-in for high power transmission lines. Veer is decoupling voltage from power. So our lines can transmit vast quantities of power at relatively low voltages. And a lot of policies and regulations, they include language that sets a what we consider an arbitrary voltage-based threshold. So for example, in the Inflation Reduction Act, in an earlier version of it, there was language around a transmission investment tax credit. And only transmission lines that were greater than 275 kilovolts could apply for that funding. We consider this an arbitrary voltage threshold. And, and it's not that there was any ill will or that we were being excluded or anything. It's just that people are so used to equating voltage with power. So one of the things we did is we went in and, and essentially lobbied to, first, we attempted to try to sort of eliminate the voltage threshold and replace it with a power-based threshold. Ultimately, we landed on just including the word and super, the phrase and superconductors within that bill language. So the bill language, um, as it as it was approaching passage, did include superconductors. Unfortunately, that investment, that transmission investment tax credit didn't make the final cut in the bill and was not passed into law. But that that is the type of thing that we we tend to advocate for. And so now for like maybe a question about your personal journey. So I know you had like a science-based background, you know, biology and, and economics. What motivated you to get into kind of that realm of technology and policy, like studying that degree and then and then getting into that space, like in, in terms of your role, like what kind of inspired you to follow that path? Yeah, my um, so my sort of education and career has been completely defined by sort of a desire to help uh, with both climate change mitigation, but also energy access challenges. And so that's that's really what drove me to do environmental science at McGill University. I ended up pivoting away from kind of conservation biology into, into climate change. And then it was through that climate change lens that I started to drill down and gain and wanted, really wanted to gain a much deeper understanding of the, of the electricity sector in particular. That's what I set out to do. And uh, ever since, you know, all of my sort of career and educational moves have, have been guided by, by the, that, that sort of motivation. It's clear that you're very passionate about working towards net zero carbon emissions. So from this technology, from Veer's technology, how does that compare to kind of the legacy transmission line technologies? I know we kind of got into it a little bit, but I would also just be interested in like kind of the, the history a little bit of it. Like, you know, when we were using liquid helium versus kind of this transition to superconductors and this liquid nitrogen use, what did that look like? Transmission technology, for better or for worse, hasn't evolved a whole lot in the last 100 years. So the, the, the bulk of transmission that we still use is either copper or aluminum-based conductors, potentially with steel steel reinforced. And it's a typically a some cop, copper strands, copper or aluminum strands wound around a, a stain, a sort of a stainless steel, what's called a former, or sort of the interior of the of the line. 
Superconductors came onto the scene, uh, as I mentioned, in the 1980s. First off, it was low temperature superconductors. So these are the sort of liquid helium, sort of 8 to 10 Kelvin range. And so the applications were extremely minimal. And it was really sort of confined to, to the laboratory and to, and to science and, and demonstration projects or R&D type projects. Once uh, high temperature superconducting materials were discovered, um, that opened up a lot of applications. And so we today, there are a couple dozen high temperature superconductor based transmission projects around the world. There are uh, a handful in the United States. There are some in Germany. There are a handful in uh, Japan and Korea. But as I mentioned, all of these projects are confined to either underground or sitting on the ground because of the closed loop cooling system that uses a whole lot of, of liquid nitrogen. And moreover, none of these projects are more than a kilometer in length, a kilometer or two in length. They're um, also distance constrained for the same reasons that I that I mentioned earlier. So we're we're really taking the next step here with superconductors. We're really um, we're we're opening up the the world of superconductors to the let's say the mainstream transmission market, where we're we're able not not just to go overhead and long distance, but we're also developing products that will be um, underground as well as subsea to uh, connect offshore wind turbines to to, to the land. And so I think that is one of the really big applications is that with the implementation of clean energy storage and the location of these is not near us. How do you think that the superconducting technology can help affect our green electric grid? Yeah, hugely, hugely. You mentioned storage, uh, which is which is great. And there's uh, a lot of activity going on with respect to particularly long duration storage these days. And we see this the solution requires all of these types of technologies to come online. I did mention that there have been several analytical studies. You know, one one fairly high profile study that that is cited frequently is uh, came out of Princeton. It's called the Net Zero America study. It concludes, just as several other studies conclude, that we need a great deal more transmission capacity to achieve net zero emissions targets. Those studies also conclude that we need a great deal more storage, long duration energy storage, as well as other things like hydrogen production so that we can blend uh, green hydrogen into liquid fuels to serve as a replacement, for example, sort of long distance uh, transport sectors and the aviation sector, things where it's very difficult to stick up, stick a battery in a plane, although that there's a lot of innovation happening there as well. So we, we, we see ourselves as, as, as a key part of the puzzle alongside several other types of technologies. And so one thing that I think is interesting is that the final product basically for the transmission industry is power, right? Uh, I times uh, current times voltage. And so your approach to solve this is by reducing resistance, which would increase the amount of current you're able to go at lower voltages, if I am understanding correctly. Is that basically the agreed upon way of new innovations or other people taking different ways to address uh, this transmission issue? That's a great question. And you did hit the nail on the head there. So we by reducing resistive losses, we are we can get a lot more current to flow through our conductors and therefore can get a lot more power to flow through our conductors. So that that is one approach. There are other companies out there that are that are innovating around, they're not using superconductors, but they're using other types of materials that are attempting to do similar things, very similar things, fewer losses, higher, higher currents, and higher power. There are also uh, another set of companies called grid enhancing technologies. And these are companies that are trying to essentially enhance the existing copper or aluminum-based transmission lines. So I'll give you one example. There are companies that are 
using um, LIDAR and machine learning to actually get real-time analytics on a given transmission line, and then to use that to tell the system operator, okay, this, this line has you know, X percent more available capacity. And so to squeeze you know, additional capacity out of our existing infrastructure. I would say that all of those companies, though, are all trying to do one thing in common, which is that we're all trying to get more capacity within either the existing transmission lines or the existing transmission corridors, because all of us, the whole industry knows that it's only getting harder to build transmission. So, yeah. One final question I had was, so your solution is very beneficial cost-wise because you can do overhead, but with that causes some safety concerns. Is there any danger in having liquid-cooled nitrogen in the lines? Because I think the adage goes, current kills, but voltage hurts. And so now that we're putting even more capacity, uh, even more current, what are the safety concerns of this new transmission technology? And what are you guys doing to address them? Yeah, so safety is a number one priority of ours. We are designing all of our products to be as safe or safer as existing existing transmission lines. This is absolutely critical to us. Fortunately for us, liquid nitrogen is an inert gas. It is it is a safe it is a safe gas. 78% of the the sort of the air we breathe is liquid nitrogen. Now, you know, where liquid nitrogen does become a danger as with many uh sort of inert gases is when it crowds out oxygen in the atmosphere. So if you have a lot of liquid nitrogen in a confined space, it will displace the oxygen that we need to breathe. Fortunately, most, if not all, of our transmission lines will be outdoors where there's no risk of that happening whatsoever. With respect to other safety elements, we know we need to be as good or better than than sort of existing transmission lines. Are there governmental bodies or regulatory bodies like in this space? Just, you know, I know with the medical device industry, that's a whole process, takes years to ensure we have the proper safety factor, safety controls, et cetera. So what does that look like in kind of the transmission lines space? Absolutely. There are very robust and large standard setting organizations that we are just starting to sort of work with as we start to develop our products. These are organizations that that get together and establish uh, standards, not just for safety, but also for, for reliability that every new transmission line coming into service has to meet. This is a major focus for us, uh, particularly in 2023 and 2024, is you know understanding what those standards are, how they apply to us, how they what new standards we may need to actually create because we're a kind of a different different beast in some senses. But yes, absolutely, there are. Yeah. And so you just touched on kind of some of those shorter term goals. I was hoping to get your perspective on the longer term vision for Veer. I know you mentioned potentially beginning the commercialization process of some transmission lines. What will that process look like? And who are your customers when it comes to commercializing transmission lines? We think some of our early adopters could be, for example, developers of renewable generation who have a great site for a wind or solar farm but are having challenges getting their power from that wind or solar site to the nearest electrical substation and to the bulk power system. We offer great advantages with regard to those types of customers. Similarly with end use, uh, you know, large users of electricity. So I'm thinking, for example, a, a Tesla Gigafactory, for example, or a, or a data center where the, there's, a, there's a need to get pow- reliable energy to that uh, data center or that large electrical load very quickly, 
But again, perhaps those end users are experiencing challenges with getting the power from the bulk transmission system to their site. For uh, and, and those challenges could be related to any number of reasons. It could be public opposition. It could be that you're you're crossing over sort of federally federally protected lands. It could be that the state in which you're operating is is perhaps reluctant to give you a permit for that transmission line for any reason. We intend for those types of customers to be our sort of shorter term short shorter term customers. In addition to electric utilities, who are of course also building a lot of transmission lines, and there's a great need for transmission lines virtually everywhere everywhere in, in country at the moment. And I don't know if we've asked this in the podcast yet, but do you have a number of how much more efficient or how much more power you can transmit through your line compared to just the conventional uh, normal infrastructure? Yes. We're developing two types of our lines, one in alternating current mode and one in direct current mode. In alternating current mode, that's the harder challenge because we have magnetic losses and things like this. And so with our alternating current products, we anticipate being able to deliver five times, up to five times the amount of energy as a, as a conventional line. So to put this in perspective, you know, a conventional 138 kilovolt line, you, you may be able to get about 180 megawatts through that line. With a Veer solution at, at the same voltage level, 138 kilovolts, we can get up to sort of 1000 sort of megawatts through that, through that same line. In DC mode, uh, where we don't have to deal with those magnetic loss issues, really the sky is the limit. However, a reasonable estimate is that we, we can get up to sort of 10x the amount of power through a direct current line relative to a conventional line at a given voltage level. Yeah, that's awesome. I guess one question I had is that Veer is on the very cutting edge of technology and you're reliant on this new brand of materials that has been invented and tested and seen, but hasn't really had a widespread use. How is that affecting your guys' roadmap when you're like trying to do something so new in the space? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. The the sort of the global market for high temperature superconducting material has been very, very small. However, in recent years, like literally in the last two or three years, interestingly enough, the nuclear fusion community has been buying up huge quantities of high temperature superconducting materials for use in their fusion reactors. They wrap them around magnets. So that has actually sort of increased the global production of high temperature superconductor conducting material significantly just in the last few years. And we've also seen price drops as a, as a result of that. We're confident, you know, if, you know, we've gone in and looked at sort of, we, we know the process by which you produce those, those super high temperature superconducting uh, materials. We're confident that, you know, there are no hard constraints that would prohibit the cost of those materials declining even further and production scaling, scaling even, even more at a global scale. And we anticipate that we and some other players will sort of pull along that industry with us. That's awesome. And then I wanted to take it back. You mentioned kind of alternating current and direct current. I know this is more of like a basic electricity question, but you know, what applications is AC required versus DC required? You know, how do you, why did you create technologies for both essentially? We're starting with AC because for kind of for the same reason that we're starting with overhead is that the, the majority of transmission lines today um, are part of a sort of um, alternating current, meshed alternating current grids. You know, the reason we have an alternating current transmission system is because back sort of back in the day when the transmission industry was was evolving, 
we, we needed to move to alternating current in order to move power over larger distances. That's kind of flipped on its, on its head now in that um, direct current technologies have come a long way. And we now have the, 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 the capability to move direct current, to move power through direct current lines over, over very large distances. So now there's a big push, actually, to uh, develop long distance, high voltage uh, direct current lines. So we will, we're also developing products for, for that sort of potential market as well. We think we might have uh, significant advantages there. The reason being that uh, whenever you build a, a direct current transmission line, you need a converter station at both end of the line to convert from direct current to alternating current so that that line can sort of interact with the existing surrounding alternating current transmission system. Because we're a lower voltage solution, we anticipate that the cost of those converter stations, which is normally exorbitant, will be reduced somewhat due to the fact that we're a lower voltage uh, solution. Interesting. And so I know that most of our applications in our house are DC uh, direct current. Would it be possible for a loan of current? Because currently, right, you would have to have that the converter like in your house or on the street. Is it possible just to send DC straight to our house now with this solution? Uh, you could, although the so the existing distribution network, the electricity distribution network that uh, we're all surrounded by. So these are the low voltage networks that are owned by your local distribution company. For example, Pacific Gas and Electric, where where you are, I think, David. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know who's up. Maybe Alette, where you are. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> so those are all those networks are all operated in um, in AC in an alternating current mode. And this this has to do with this just historical path dependency that I that I mentioned earlier. There's no technical reason we couldn't do that. In fact, if we could sort of snap our fingers and redesign the grid from the ground up, that might be a, a much actually better solution. So I guess as the current infrastructure ages, it, do you expect to see that a lot of people will want to just maintain status quo, but insert your new technology? Or are we ever going to have a real redesign where we switch to this new type of format with the DC? Yeah. So we do see a lot of opportunity for redesign. We don't think it'll be wholesale top-down redesign, at least in the United States. It will be more piecemeal incremental. But we are seeing a sort of a large, if you kind of look at the, I want to call it like the demographic curve of the age of of transmission lines, uh, we are seeing a large cluster of transmission lines that are reaching retirement age that are, you know, going to be going to be uh, approaching soon. And so there will be a lot of opportunity, not just to replace those lines with existing capacity, but rather to uh, replace those lines with additional capacity and potentially even sort of think about reconfiguring the topography of the existing network. So we do see a lot of opportunities in that space. You noted within the United States, right? And so that just led to kind of a natural question. Are you working with other countries as well at, at this time? Or is that something for the future? Like, how does your role kind of evolve when it comes to interacting with um, governmental bodies outside of the, the U.S.? Yes, uh, so we are, um, and we are—we're a global company, and nonetheless, we're a startup company, and we're resource constrained, and we're biased toward the U.S. just be, just by because of the fact that most of our employees are U.S. nationals and and work here, live here. We've started to sort of explore opportunities in Europe. But absolutely, we're also in, in talks with some uh, a few sort of entities in in India as well as in uh, Brazil, and ultimately, we certainly want to be in conversations one way or another with the right entities and on virtually every continent. So, with that, 
I know that there's been a lot of green infrastructure past, like you mentioned before, uh, where like electric vehicles are very heavily prioritized with like huge tax credits. Is there any uh, new legislation that is upcoming either here or abroad that you think could really help this technology? Or do you think that as we just become more mind, like mindful of environmental challenges, that these legislation uh, legislation will start to come more in droves? Uh, I'll just start within this. In this country, I don't envision too much legislation coming down the pipes in the next two years, given the 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 makeup of the con- of Congress currently. However, there's there's still a lot of activity within the agencies, the federal agencies. Mm-hmm. So there's one there's one agency in particular called the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and they're actually in the middle of of a rulemaking that would uh, do some very interesting things. It would it would sort of encourage transmission planners to think more into the future with respect to their transmission plans. So currently, you know, the status quo is that you plan for the next three to five years, but there's this increasing sort of consensus in the policy community that we need to actually be planning for the next 10 or maybe 20 years. And we need to be thinking about where are those renewable resource areas and how are we going to get the energy from those renewable resource areas to the load centers, to the electricity load centers where they need to be. So there are actually some exciting developments at the federal agency level. Yeah, I'll stop there. Those are interesting questions to ask. So I'm curious and I'm excited to kind of follow along Vera's journey to see the the impact y'all make in this space. But I wanted to kind of wrap up this episode with your own personal advice for our listeners who, you know, are pursuing a science-based degree. But as we've seen in past episodes as well, like, policy plays a huge role, right? Or being being able to communicate and liaise with policymakers is integral or like it's, you know, very vital to kind of drive that innovation and be able to implement your technologies in real time. So do you have any advice for those types of listeners who might be interested in pursuing a similar career as yourself in terms of technology and policy? Absolutely. And so you said it well, some of the best policymakers and regulators that I've encountered have engineering and STEM backgrounds. I'll just say that. So coming at the policy and regulatory world with a solid understanding of engineering and and STEM is a great benefit to the policy and regulatory world. Also, Vera's hiring. You know, we're we're, we're scaling quickly. We're hiring like crazy. We've grown a lot and we're continuing to grow. So please feel free to reach out. And uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Max, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure. And I learned a lot about transmission lines. So I was not envisioning that going into into this morning. (laughs) Great. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thank you both for for your time and for inviting me to be on the show. Absolutely. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below 
And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.